Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. My first guest today is Lord Price. Mark Price is the founder of Engaging Works, a digital platform designed to make the world a little happier. He's the former head of Waitrose and a former chair of business in the community. My second guest is Jenny Costa. She's the founder of Rubies in the Rubble, an award-winning condiments brand with a twist. We'll talk about happiness in the workplace, how you measure it and what really matters. We'll explore the future of food consumption and wastage. And we'll explore the passions and journeys of entrepreneurs of all ages. Let's get to the conversation. Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast supported by Fujitsu in partnership with McCann. And my guests today are Lord Price, that's Mark Price, who, amongst many other things, is the founder of Engaging Works. And that is a digital platform designed to make the world a little happier. We'll hear all about that. My second guest is Jenny Costa. She's an entrepreneur and she's the founder of a fascinating company, Rubies in the Rubble. It's a condiments firm with a twist. Mark, Jenny, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, can I just get something potentially awkward out of the way? Jenny, um, Mark, as you know, used to run Waitrose. Yes. Where did Waitrose, hopefully Waitrose played a role in your journey somewhere? <laughs> Mark is off the hook. When Mark was involved as well, I think we, we launched in Waitrose in 2013 um, and they helped us unbelievably along the journey. We didn't have a barcode at the time. We started in eight stores and grew from there. So they've Great. been fantastic. Well, brands. that could have been the most awkward start to a <laughs> podcast <laughs> so far. Mark, do you, do you claim credit for this or was this all? I, I don't. We had a brilliant <laughs> team of uh, people in Waitrose uh, but the great thing about uh, the Waitrose business is in everybody's DNA is a belief that the kind of thing that Jenny set up is absolutely appropriate. So taking product that nobody wants and turning it into a product that everybody wants uh, is a fantastic thing to do. So we were very, very pleased and proud to support her business. Excellent. Well, more about how large companies can help small a little later. But, Mark, why don't I start with you? I mean, um, so many different hats that you've worn over the years. I mean, very close to the heart of this podcast, you chaired business in the community with the deputy chairman of the John Lewis Partnership, and you ran Waitrose, of course, uh, one of the world's best-known supermarkets and uh, so many interesting values at the core of that business. I want to take you back to where you started, though, your first ever job. Um, my first ever job was helping my dad, my dear old dad. Uh, he had a wholesale business. Uh, he was a one-man band. He saw an opportunity to buy biscuits, crips, uh, confectionery from the really big producers and then to sell them to small shops who couldn't um, get orders. They could only deal in small amounts. So from my youngest age, I can remember helping him unload big lorries into warehouses yes. and then load uh, his van. And then in the holidays, uh, I'd go out with him and at night, Uh, If the phone rang, I'd pick up the phone and I'd take orders from shopkeepers all over Cheshire's and schools. Now there's a law against it. It's called the Child Labour Act. I Um, didn't want to point that out. Sour the tail. It didn't exist in the 1960s. So... Uh, I, I, I've worked since my earliest memory. I want to whiz back through your um, childhood momentarily, but if I can ask you a slightly personal question to kick off. Um, happiness in the workplace is core to what you're all about today. In the broadest sense, what makes you happy? Uh, well, I've discovered over the years that the thing that gives me greatest pleasure is working with the team to achieve results and to see people grow and to celebrate with them the way that they're growing and the things that they're achieving. There was a point in my life when I thought, if I get that next promotion, if I get that next highest paycheck, if I get the next car on the company ladder, it will make me happy. 
I discovered reasonably quickly that it didn't. And all that you ever want is the next one. I can remember uh, thinking to myself that when I became uh, the head of one of uh, John Lewis's department stores, that that, that would be it. Um, and I can remember sitting behind the desk of John Lewis High Wycombe on my first day as managing director there thinking, I've made it. Yeah. And then within a week, I was thinking... What might I do after this? Yeah. So and so I stopped and I discovered that actually, it's about building that business with the people that are there. And then if anything came of it, then that was fine. If nothing came of it, that was equally fine. So in that case, I mean, you did end up obviously running the company with the partnership for over thirty years. What continued to drive you? Um, because presumably you could have remained, you know, the most invested managing partner or uh, director of that one place in High Wycombe. What kept you going? I enjoyed working with the team. I'd always been competitive. I'd played uh, football. I um, played for Crew Alexander Juniors. <laughs> uh, I was a mad keen golfer. I wanted to turn pro, but my dear old dad told me to get a proper job. <laughs> working so for him. Working for him. No, working for the John Lewis Partnership yeah. or MS. Um, and I just enjoyed that mix of um, daily figures feeling as though you're winning in a market, um, working with a team of great people that you enjoy uh, the company of, that you want to see improve. And so I was really happy just doing that. And I never sought a promotion. I never knocked on anybody's door. I never said, I want to do this, or when are you going to give me that job, or I'm going to go if you don't. I just happily stayed, um, did the best I could, and enjoyed doing what I was doing. So now if we go back, and you went to crew. County Grammar School for Boys, you studied at Lancaster University. If we go back to that graduate trainee in 1982 at the John Lewis Partnership and we say you're going to be running this business one day or deputy chairman of this business, what does the graduate in 1982 say to that? Well, it's what I said to all the graduates that joined Waitrose when I was running it. Uh, and um, I would meet them when they all started. And I'd ask them what they aspired to do inside the business. And about three quarters of the 15 or 20 we took on every year would say, we want your job. We want to run Waitrose. Mm. And I'd say to them, that's fantastic. And I'd then say to them, do you know that the average tenure of a CEO is normally four or five years? And if you're very lucky, you might get to do that twice in a corporate career. So tell me, at what age would you like those five years? And they would stop <laughs> and they'd think and they'd say, well, probably about mid-40s. And I mm. said, yeah, that's a pretty good call. So then I'd say, so what are you going to do for the next 24 years? Because what you need to do is enjoy yourself and build your skills, your knowledge, your contacts, your understanding, so that when you are in that position, you can execute your responsibilities to the best of your ability. And so my um, advice to myself would have been exactly that. Don't rush at it. Enjoy it. Do the best you can. And then just late circumstance, good luck, fate, take you along a journey and just enjoy that journey. No, great. And what a journey it's been. It's, it strikes me, and I want to talk about uh, engaging works, there is a formula at the core of what you're doing, and you express it as nourishing equals flourishing. Just touch on that for us. What do you mean? Well, I think it comes from two bits of um, experience. First, my father, who used to preach on a Sunday, and he would drive into me, my brother and my sister, the simple thought, the straightforward thought that everybody is equal. Nobody is better than anybody else. But our task was to find out what people's strengths were and to try and um, bring those strengths out even more. 
And so when I went into the John Lewis partnership, which is owned by all the people that work in it, it was the same kind of philosophy. Nobody's better than anybody else. Everybody should be treated with equal respect. Everybody has an important role to play, but everybody's role is different within the organisation. The other thing that, that I learned was that in the John Lewis partnership, its supreme purpose is the happiness of everybody that worked there. And happiness isn't a woolly concept. It's sort of been hijacked in the 60s as a bit hippie. But within the John Lewis partnership, it's been codified over the course of 100 years. And it really means a number of things. Happiness comes from uh, being uh, fairly rewarded and recognised when you do something well. It comes from having the information to do your job well and the information to uh, understand how the organisation is doing. It comes from feeling empowered, having responsibility to do your job and then being rewarded and recognised for doing it well. It comes from feeling that the organisation cares for you. My favourite quote of all time is Theodore Roosevelt, who said, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm. And so inside the partnership, a long time ago, set up by Speed and Lewis in 1928, he had GPs in the branches before the NHS. Even today, uh, you get physiotherapy, you get um, a whole host of people who come in and look after your, your physical well-being. But they're also committed to look after your financial well-being and, of course, your mental well-being. So working for an organisation that cares for you, then there's having a sense of pride. So the more you feel you have a sense of pride in what you're doing, the more committed you are. And then lastly, job satisfaction, which breaks into two things. First of all, uh, whether you feel you're being developed really important particularly for millennials to feel that they're being developed in mm. their role and then the last thing is the relationship you have with your line manager which is the most critical 83 percent of people who leave their jobs for reasons other than promotion or maternity leave paternity leave caring leave they leave because they don't have a good relationship with their line manager and so what i've wanted to do is to take those things codify them and to help people understand how they can improve them in their everyday jobs to make them happier at work. And your point is that across all of those steps, these are things that can actually be measured. They're all measurable. So I wrote a book called Fairness for All, which was published in um, 2016, and that's about the John Lewis partnership model, but also my time at Business in the Community, about how companies do those six things that I've talked about. And then I built a survey. It's free of charge. Anybody in the world can take it. We've now had tens and tens of thousands of people take it all over the world, 130 countries. We work with over 160 businesses. And what we do is we help people to understand where they're happy and where they're not happy at yeah. work. And then we help them improve. So my simple goal is to try and make the world just a little bit happier and a little bit more decent. Well, it's, it's free it's, of charge to all individuals. So And um, it does sound simple, doesn't it? And I should say there, Mark, is this is engaging.works. And you can actually see who uh, who is polling where in terms of industry and also in terms of country. Which of those six, and we've gone from rewards to right through to job satisfaction, where do the companies that you meet struggle the most? Which of those dimensions? Um, well... I wish it were that simple. Mm. The, the reality is um, it's a bit like that saying, if you've got your head in the oven and your feet in the fridge, uh, you're not on average temperature. Um, and so it's different for every industry. What, what I can tell you, if you want some general facts, I can tell you that 37% of people going into work feel anxious. I can tell you that 70% of millennials are actively looking for a job and for as little as a 5% increase in their job would leave what they're doing now. And in go. other words, even the ones that are in a job? Even the ones that are in a job. I can tell you that the UK is the 10th happiest country to uh, work in. 
uh, which, tenth, which the is tenth, the top. <laughs> uh, the top is Austria at the moment. The USA are ninth. Um, and Ireland is behind us. Um, but we have it, we've had the survey taken in more Scandinavian countries uh, this year, so uh, I suspect that the UK will actually drop back to 12th or 13th. Right. And there's a clear link between the productivity of the UK and the happiness of our workforce. And one of the things that I've learned over the passing of time is there is a very clear link between the happiness and the engagement of a workforce and commercial results. Right. And evidence now that's been collected by numerous academic institutions has said that if you have a happy and engaged workforce, you're 20% more profitable, your productivity is 20% higher, your wastage is 43% lower, your earning per share is 134% higher, your staff turnover is lower, your sick level is lower. So that there are now measurable and tangible benefits so to having a happy, like, engaged workforce. It sounds like the opposite of Woolly to me. And also, and Jenny, we're going to uh, meet you momentarily, but Mark, you sit in the House of Lords, uh, you were a trade minister uh, for over a year, uh, internationally, uh, tra- travelling the world. It sounds to me when you make the point that happier workforces are more commercially successful, that must ladder up nationally, and therefore you must have a renewed message to government. Do they have a role to play in this? Well, I think government does, but I think business does, and I think individuals do as well. So my view would be that having a happy and engaged workforce is good for you as an individual. It's good for your mental well-being. Uh, people that are happier tend to be more successful, so it's good for you individually. I think it's good for society too, for the, all those reasons. It's good for business. I've given the figures, uh, which are clear. But also, I think it's particularly good for governments right now, because what I think we're seeing in the UK, in Europe, in America, is people starting to feel very concerned about the way the economic model is working. I'm a capitalist. I've seen um, capitalism bring people out of poverty around the world. I particularly saw it as a trade minister. I saw um, Vietnam officials desperate to try and get more money and capital into their countries to raise people from poverty. We've seen it in India. We've seen it in China. But there are also real concerns. People are concerned that the gap between the haves and the have-nots is too great. The reality is it's narrowing, but the perception is it's widening. In addition to that, people are worried about public services. They're worried about their jobs being taken by robots, by technology, by automation. There's a whole host of things that people are concerned about, about the way the world is working. And what we're seeing now is people around the world reaching for more radical solutions. It's called populism. Mm. Really what it is is saying to people there is a different way, there is a better way, there is some magic source that you can put on life that's going to make it easier. My view is that the only magic source is people feeling that they have a real stake in the businesses that they work in, that as a consequence of that, they're happier, as a consequence of that, they're more successful, as a consequence of which our societies are better. So those are the reasons why I think it's so important for governments as well as businesses and individuals. Now, speaking of magic source, uh, I'm joined by one of the world's greatest condiment makers. (laughs) Uh, Now, Jenny... Uh, Jenny Costa, you'll be delighted to hear we're not going to talk about rebooting capitalism immediately. Uh, But it does occur to me that Mark's already touched on the fact that businesses can make a difference in the world. Mm. And you wouldn't have done what you've done if you didn't believe that too, I guess. No, I I mean, I again, we live in a capitalist society and I feel like businesses more and more, and you see it changing as well, that 
businesses have the responsibility to take on issues that are around them. Um, and charities have a role to play, but businesses, um, right at the heart of what we do, we can make a change through everything that we do in the workforce. And I can I, I see the difference with CSR used to be quite an add-on to business, and now there's this real change of a purpose and consumers demanding more from businesses as well. It's not just you create a product, but you have to have a, a business that people can buy into right. and believe in. So our listener is now tantalised. Give us the give us the elevator pitch on rubies in the rubble. This is, this has a twist. What is it? Uh, well, we are. A a, um, an exciting sort of uh, young food sustainable brand. We make condiments from fruit and veg that would otherwise go to waste. And I started it back in 2012 after researching food waste. And I wanted to create a brand that celebrated food that was wasted that is perfectly good for use. Uh, and it was mainly on the back of researching. We waste a third of what we produce globally. And this costs of absolute fortune. It costs a fortune um, from an environmental impact. I mean, that was what really made me tick. But um, agriculture is the largest single contributor to greenhouse gases. And as we grow as a population, we're looking at doubling it by 2050 to feed the expected 9 billion. But yet, while we're, we're inefficient with the way that we're utilising it, and I think it's, especially in developed countries, it's a change in mindset from people seeing or feeling that they can afford to be wasteful with food, making that change in mindset to see food as this natural, precious resource again. Mm. And that's what we hope to do as a brand, that it's a celebratory, fun brand that people can buy into and, and hopefully change their habits. So paint us a picture. Tell us about one of your flagship products. Where can we find out about this? And I've tasted it myself. Absolutely delicious. I wouldn't have Great. invited you on if, if it wasn't the case. Well, I've brought some of our newest product. Um, so we have a ketchup, which yep. is a product uh, we've been developing for almost a year and a half because I felt like if we had a ketchup, it had to taste and stand up to the nation's favourite. Um, but it's uh, we've substituted the two biggest ingredients in ketchup, which is water and then sugar, mm. with surplus pears, um, which are collected from around our factory. So it's better for you, better for the planet. And then we also have a range of plant-based mayonnaises. So instead of... Um, uh, utilising eggs, we've worked with hummus manufacturers mm. and taken aquafaba, which is basically a bean water when they cook their chickpeas. It's a very starchy, high in protein water. It's sort of like what you get in a tin of chickpeas, really. Um, but it has the same properties as an egg white. So we've just used that to make um, some great mayos. We've got a chilli version, different things. And then our flagship range was relishes and chutneys, which is where I started. Yeah. And the way you describe your business, Jenny, it's very straightforward. I think the way you express yourself is very humble, if I may say. Um, I sense though uh, an underlying fierce ambition there. Yeah, I'm super ambitious right. for I, I see that there's a this time is right, that there's a gap in the market, there's a demand for products that stand for more. And consumers want to buy into brands that they believe in. But then those brands have to live up and deliver for the consumer as well. So um, no, I'm I'm so ambitious and very excited, especially with our new ketchup launch. Uh, and we see our growth mainly coming from, we start always in restaurants um, and hotels and out of home before going into retail. As a small brand with, with limited budgets, um, it seems a very easy way for people to get to know our brand in the dwell time while you're looking at your menu in your favourite pub. You can read the back of a bottle and then find us later. I love it. It makes it makes total sense to me. Very briefly, though, Jenny, you you studied uh, Edinburgh University, maths and economics, and all of a sudden here you are as a retail entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, was there a twist on the journey? A eureka moment? I often ask entrepreneurs what the spark was. Yeah. Um, well, I was brought up on a very small um, sustainable farm on the west coast of Scotland, yeah, I can hear and this. yeah, and so I think right from the beginning. Um, we're a family of four in the least densely populated area in Britain. And so we were very close. We were very entrepreneurial, always coming up with 
fun new inventions on the farm. And my mother is an artist and a keen gardener, and she would always turn things that we'd grown in the garden into preserves or different condiments, ketchups, cordials. And from the back of that, I suppose I had this love of food and the understanding of the journey and how much work goes into food. And then um, I did my master's in mathematics. I ended up in the city. I got an offer in a hedge fund. And that was my first proper job after university and was there for about two and a half years. But very soon after being there, within six months, I kept on thinking, why am I here? I've never even read the FT. I have no interest in finance. And this doesn't sort of excite me. Or if I I was still here when I'm 40 or 45, I'd be really disappointed Mm. with what I've spent my time doing. And and finance makes, you know, if it makes you tick and, and that is where you love to be, then it's perfect. But for me, I knew I had to be doing something that I actually was passionate about. And, and it makes sense. And, and, and going back to Mark's uh, checkpoints earlier, the job satisfaction, not there, the pride, yeah. not there, the well-being, yeah. really marked a little low as well. I mean, I've got so many questions for you, Jenny. Very briefly, I mean, when we talk about happy workplaces, it must be on your mind, a small business, a dozen. I don't know if we, if we can say. Is that is that a right to say yeah. about the size of the business? Yeah, I mean, we have um, we are still very small, but from my point of view, we've grown from four, which we knew everything about each other. We we're four very close friends. You could ask exactly what someone what was going on in their personal life every Monday. And now we're, we're 12, which is still... A very small and manageable, but I can see the strain and the the difference in not being as close and not feeling like you can share the strategy with everybody. And so we're we are very mindful of um, how we grow as a business, and a lot of it's building communities. So right from the beginning, um, we've always had a we have Rubies and the Rebel workouts twice a week as a team, and it just gets the team sort of um, having a bit of fun together. Um, we try and do as many out of work uh, or sort of in work time, but community events and things but we are just at the moment we've had our first session with trying to uh, getting outside support but hoping to look at how we do this ongoing but to try and sort of identify with everybody what is their personal ambition and what really makes them tick and what are the things that as we we've got this privilege to be such a small business and as we grow we can actually create the way that we want to run and we don't have to do the same formats or the same um, structures as every other big company we can we can create our own the rubies way and, and trying to get everyone involved in that and in a sense mark and not to undermine how challenging it is to grow that business jenny has the luxury of invention allowing the business yeah. to emerge and there must be so many legacy organizations which are frankly more challenging to fix as you listen to jenny's story what, what occurs to you mark what would you like to ask uh, well i'm really struck by the way that that jenny's talking about how the organization has changed from four to 12 and will change again um uh, for me the best expression of culture is it's the sediment of past transactions and so what jenny and her team are laying down now is that sediment of the way people treat each other uh, the way that things are done and that has a lasting effect one of the things that's most difficult if you come into a big corporate or established business and you want to set about changing it, you can't do that quickly. Yeah. Um, um, the main reason is that the um, the existing teams will say, well, the last management team three years ago said exactly the same and they didn't do it. They weren't good. And so living by your values, proving it day in, day out takes a long time. The wonderful thing about Jenny is that she has got a business that has got very strong ethics at its heart and therefore it's much easier because of what she does to start inculcating into her team those similar kinds of values about 
about how they treat each other and build the business. So, I mean, it's a fantastically exciting thing to be able to do. <laughs> it is. And Jenny, um, what, what would you ask Mark? I mean, he's worn so many different hats. I, I could see how intrigued you were when he talked about what makes mm. a happy workplace so much resonates. What would you ask? Well, I'm definitely going to be doing your survey because I think I think that's a, such a great way to start as well of examining different areas of the business and, and people's concerns as well. From my side, I mean, you've ran a huge organisation and actually managing that and keeping the ethos that you're wanting to retain but at scale is is always something that I've always questioned how people do that, especially because it sounds ridiculous, but I am feeling the, the pressure even now with the team having grown that how and, and also not just choosing the easy route of I read about this structure, let's put that in place, but figuring out what we need to do internally. Um, how did you set about change or was there any examples of change that you needed to put in place when you came um, to be running to be running Waitrose? Uh, so I think that there are two things I draw out. First, you are the living embodiment of the company. Mm-hmm. So everything you do, say, all of your behaviours are watched and copied. So the first thing is about you being true to yourself and true to the values you want in your organisation. The second thing is that I read archaeology and ancient history at university, <laughs> uh, unlike you reading maths. Um, and uh, I was always intrigued by how the, the Roman Empire uh, grew and um, did so well for so long. And they had a really simple system. And that was uh, in the in the Roman army, you had uh, cohorts and legions. And so they would expect an individual to manage eight people. And they always felt that that span of control meant that you could really understand those eight people and look after them. But when it started to get bigger, you started to lose control. I remember the first chairman of the John Lewis partnership, uh, Peter Lewis, when I joined, uh, he always said to me, when you have a meeting and there are more than 10, the chair has absolute control under 10, it becomes more of an equal meeting. Mm. And I think there's something about spans of control and about how you organise yourself. Once you do that, your priority, mine at Waitrose, was to look after my board, to support my board, to give them all that they needed to thrive. And then I trusted them to do the same with the 10 people that reported to them and the 10 people that reported to them. So I think it's those two things. It's you being the living embodiment of everything that you believe uh, as a signpost to everybody. And the second is making sure that you look after directly the people that report to you and that they do the same with their people. Yeah, because I can imagine that that sort of um, if you're embodying something and then it's passed down the line to somebody else to then continue embodying it, almost those hires, but also making sure that they're really on your same page in the same wavelength is so important. Yeah. Can I ask you both a question? Uh, here's an optimistic view. Um, when our descendants go through the ruins, the archaeological ruins of our generation, they're going to say this cohort, trashed this planet right this is what they might reflect and as you go back through the layers they might end up saying until something happened until something changed this is my optimistic spin i mean do you agree that we are trashing the planet but also what has to change our audience for the lens is a business audience what must change have i started off with too bleak an analysis of what our uh, what our descendants will find, Mark? Uh, well, I'm a great optimist, and I think that uh, we are supremely capable 
of putting right our wrongs. We've done that throughout history. So I saw a wonderful piece in the paper two weeks ago about two female Chinese scientists who created a bacteria that eats plastic and turns it to water. Mm. Uh, equally, I think that there are lots of incredibly talented people who are working on the climate change challenge. It wasn't so long ago when I was growing up, we had a hole in the ozone and that was going to kill us and then we we found a way. So those kind of things that you talk about, I feel less concerned about. I think that there will be a will and a way that we will solve those problems. For me, the greatest injustice in the world is that people are not pay- fairly paid for the effort they put into their work. I feel that after you've given somebody your love, the next most precious thing you can give them is your labour. Um, the reason I took on the chair of fair trade was I do think there's exploitation in the developing world that is wrong and it's not helping those countries. And then when I look at what's happening even close to home, I am concerned that uh, the capitalist system is putting a pressure on people over making returns for shareholders, which ultimately could lead to the destruction of the system. And we start seeing that in a whole host of ways, as I mentioned earlier. So for me, the greatest injustice is not plastic in the oceans, which I think we can solve, or the planet heating up, which I think we can solve. It's fairness. It's equality. It's people that work being fairly rewarded and recognised for the role that they play. And everybody has an important role. In Waitrose, the cashier was just as important as the board director. The board director was going to make a huge decision that would have a great influence on the company. But equally, a cashier sitting in Waitrose on the King's Road, who doesn't look after 200 customers going through every day, is going to have a damaging effect on the company. So it's recognising everybody has a role to play and rewarding that. Understood. Jenny, what's your take on this? From the environmental point of view, um, I feel there is a bit of an urgency to change. uh, And I think that's we're dependent on governments, businesses and individuals to start caring and and doing different things. I think it's very easy, especially sitting in developed um, or more developed countries, um, to be looking at that and trying to address it. I think it's a much harder challenge when you're looking at developing countries. But if we are starting to want to carve and, and change ways, I think there is a responsibility from every angle, from the individual, from uh, companies and from governments to be starting to change ways. Um, I, I get very excited about the fact that an individual has a lot of power, um, that the way that you spend your pennies in, in your pocket is actually a vote every time you're spending it and, and it's the world that you want to live in and create. Um, so I think that educating that consumer and making them aware of things and actually feeling empowered to want to change the way that they're acting does have a huge impact. Um, mm. I think everybody, every individual has the power to make change because that then affects demand and it pushes demand for then wanting other change and governments then get into play and so do businesses start reacting. And, and, and do either of you have any sense that one generation cares any more about this planet of ours than another? Because there are so many generalizations and cliches mm-hmm. around on this. Mark, you're nodding, but I think that's because you have a view, not because you do think, well, you tell me. So I, I was very lucky to sit for nine months on uh, a Lord's Select Committee on Intergenerational Fairness. And we concluded that work in March. And um, it's just wrong to say that the young don't care for the old and the old don't care for the young. It's just wrong. 
And what was fascinating with the research that we did is that every generation has a different set of issues. For older people, it's about care into old age. It's about their health. It's about their assets, what they do with their assets. For a young generation, it's being able to afford the assets. Mm. It's about debt. It's about opportunity. But then for those who are in mid-career, it's about the world around them changing and how they cope with those changes. How do they reskill? How do they keep working into their 60s? And so what you find is that every generation has a different set of issues, equally as important. But in all the research that we did over nine months, we did not find any disrespect from one generation to another in terms of the issues. And I guess that's how the generations regard each other. I guess I'm as interested in the extent to which younger people, and I'd be interested back to your happiness reflections, Mark, you know, is it more important to young people that they're happy at work? Are young people happier at work. But first, Jenny, any take on this intergenerational question? From a younger person's point of view, I got really excited by the financial crisis because I think, in a way, the, the, the wave after of how that's affected the way that people think about businesses and their choices in life, seeing um, that money can disappear overnight or be devalued overnight, I think really made a shift in, in, in a generation of people looking into careers and looking into jobs and thinking, what actually am I passionate about? What really ticks? Because this, I don't, I'm not just going to go into finance, whereas a lot of people always sort of jumped into careers that had a large payout at mm. the end of it. And I think to me, um, and when I see, when I sort of started, came out of university in 2010, so it was right in the middle of, of it all. And um, I look at my peers from university and so many of them started their own businesses and it was that shift of um, rather than five years beforehand where everyone was seeming to be going into the city, people were starting to think, actually, what do I really want to do? Mm. And what well, they're shaking tick? the foundations. Yeah, so I, I, I sort of, I feel like there is a shift in um, in the younger generation. I think coming back to sort of food, especially sort of, where, where I look at things like the horse meat scandal also made a huge change of making people think again, where is my food from and what's what's going on behind the scenes? And I actually want to know exactly where things are from. And there's also been this big movement when you look at London as well, where the high streets might be suffering, but then food markets are just you're exploding. Mm. Um, people are so excited about trialling different things. And, and I wonder about the younger generation, if I can use such broad terminology, less content to put up with being unhappy at work. Maybe it was something that previous generations just put up with. Um, I think that's probably true. There's evidence that uh, younger people are more prepared to move on. Millennials, though, and by millennials, I don't mean under 35s, I mean under 29s. There's no doubt that they're less happy in work than their older cohorts. Interesting. Mm. And the most, for me, insightful bit of information from the research that we do is that non-managers are happier than managers. And it is the only age cohort where that's the case. And therefore, what I think is happening is that as middle management has been stripped out of organisations with delayering, as people have looked to reduce costs, young managers have been put into management responsibilities, maybe earlier than they might have in the past, but without the infrastructure to support them, as a consequence of which they are less happy, they feel more anxious, they feel more stressed. I've just completed some research about uh, relationship with line managers and trust. Mm. And again, what's fascinating is how untrusted non-managers feel, Mm. which I suppose you might expect, but it's really stark. Uh, Out of 26 industries that we measure, there's only five 
where there's a significant variance between managers and non-management in terms of relationship with their line managers. And in fact, managers have a less good relationship with their line managers than non-managers, which wow. is extraordinary. Yeah. And that's something to do with them preserving status and pay. But on trust... 20 in 20 sectors the gap on feeling trusted between managers and non-managers is of a significant so more than five percentage points yeah. and i have to say there is a huge amount of interesting stuff on uh, engaging work so i do i do commend that uh, a friend of mine henry stewart thinks that people should be able to choose their manager within a large organization that probably throws a cat amongst the pigeons well, I think in a way, you will always work with different managers who've got different styles. And I think that's a good thing in terms of rounding you. The thing that I think is most important is that people find mentors, particularly young people going into the workplace, uh, particularly if they're not going to be supported with a, a management structure that's got um, lots of coaching skills. So I think for me, finding mentors for young people when they go into the workplace, finding somebody impartial to give advice and support is really important. It's a good point, isn't it, Jenny? I mean, you're the boss. Do you still have a mentor? I have quite a few mentors actually but um we are at the moment doing a sort of piece on trying to find a mentor for everybody because we are a small team i've never run a food business before um we are starting to hire people that sort of have done done things in the past that are relevant but it is there's a lot of people that are feeling like they don't have that structure or, or somebody to be able to ping ideas yeah. off of and that mentor could be in or out could be in or out and, and actually the majority are out because we obviously don't really have anyone in. and I think there's a difference between coaching and mentoring so if you want to coach that's somebody mm. inside the organization who could say to you how might you've done that better we do it this way etc so coaching is about helping people improve day-to-day -day on the job mentoring is more about how are you thinking about the next year what are you going to do next are you finding a difficult relationship somewhere in the business that you'd like to talk to yeah. me about mm. so mentoring Mentoring is different from coaching, and I would completely agree with Jenny that finding a mentor outside the business who can be with you through your journey through work is the best approach if you can achieve it. Well, I feel like we're covering a massive range of ground, but I think very, very substantial uh, stuff, and I wish we had a bit longer. I want to ask you my quick-fire questions, which I ask all the guests on the lens. I'm fascinated by who people want to meet. Jenny, if you could meet anyone for coffee, they've got to be alive. Who would you meet and why? I would meet um, Paul Polman. I've... <sighs> I know it's a bit of a classic, but I've met him a couple of times and every time I leave thinking I'd love just to sit down with a coffee. Right, so he's just stepped down as Chief Executive of Unilever. Yep. Bit um, more time on his hands, I doubt it. <laughs> I, ju I just think as what he achieved, um, how he stood out, he had so many different stakeholders pushing him in one direction and he really held his ground and has this belief for big businesses doing great change. Great. Well, Paul, if you're listening, Jenny Costa would value that coffee. She might even buy it for you. Uh, Mark, you've met a lot of people who... Who's still on the list? Uh, I, I'd be very lucky. I have. But I'd love to have coffee with the Dalai Lama. Mm. Uh, I was very fortunate to meet him once, but only to say hello. Uh, but to, to have half an hour just to talk to him about the world and happiness. And I'd like to pick his brains about how he sees work and happiness. Yes. And I should be thinking about the Dalai Lama's views on happiness. I'm also wondering if he drinks coffee. Uh, he, he does apparently eat Werther's Originals. There you go. There's a little fact for you. Uh, what about on your bookshelf? What's on that? Mark, you've written a few. Uh, I have, but a book I read a long, long time ago at the start of my business career with the John Lewis Partnership was uh, How to Win Friends and Influence mm. People by Dale Carnegie. Dale Carnegie, what a classic. Mm. And there's some sage advice in there, which I remember to this day, particularly about perils of criticising and the power of appreciating. Yeah, love it. It's a classic, right? Well, we'll link to all of these. Jenny, 
Uh, mine's closest. Of, I've just recently read Educated by Tara um, Westover, and I thought it was such an interesting take on uh, extreme version of it. She's from a very um, a strong Mormon family, and she then goes and gets an education. But just looking at how your upbringing affects you and how it affects different decisions and how you create your own thoughts in life. Educated. Mm-hmm. Great tip. We will share the links for that. My final question then to the two of you. Go back to the start of your journey. That could be for you, Jenny, the day you founded Ruby's. It might be even earlier as a student or earlier. Um, A piece of advice to your younger self. Very topical from today, I think, um, would be to figure out what you really care about and work for a business or an organisation or do something along that line. Because I realise in life, I think I am my best and I, I excel when I'm passionate about something and I'm really going in the right direction. And I think everybody does when they're when it's something that they just love and they want to put all of their energy into. And so I would really have encouraged my former self right from the very beginning not to join an organisation for a paycheck or for any other reason, but making sure that you're taking steps that on things that make sense that you have a passion for and a purpose for. Love it. And I have to say, every time I meet you and then when I reflect on what you do, it's a complete connection between those two. Mark's nodding his right, isn't it? That yeah, Jenny's just done such an amazing job. Thank yeah. you so much. And Mark, let's go back. We could go back uh, to Crew, uh, to Crew County Grammar School, or, or a little after. But what would you say to your former self? Well, I've been incredibly lucky in the people that I've met and the opportunities that have come along at the moments in time when uh, I've been ready for a change. So a ride your luck would be one. But I think the real one would be that um, it's what my dear old dad said to me. And he said, we're all different. We've all had different upbringings, different education, different experiences. And therefore, no two people will hold the same views. And therefore, he would say to me, your job is to understand and listen to why people have a different view to you. Don't butt in, don't argue, just listen to why they're different. And then you'll be able to do one of two things. You'll either be able to change your worldview based on new information you've received, or you'll be able to explain to that person why you have come to a different view based on your experiences. And he said either of those two things are very constructive and positive Mm -hmm. ways to go forward. So I've learned not to argue. Um, but rather to sit back and listen and reflect on whether my view uh, is um, is right. And what I've learnt is that there really are no right and wrong views. There are just views. Excellent. You also inspire me to remember that great organisations are made up of great individuals. And it's that collection, I suppose, that... Uh, in fact, I think the origin of the word company means with bread, doesn't it? Yeah. In terms of that ability to sit down together. Well, I'm happy we got to sit down uh, today. Uh, our time has uh, come to an end for this particular episode, but I'm so grateful to you both. So Lord Price, Mark Price, Jenny Costa, and please do look out for Engaging Works and indeed Rubies in the Rubble and any and all other organisations these two extraordinary characters form over the next few years. Thank you very much. Thank well, you, all. Thank you. You've been listening to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. If you like what you heard, please leave us a comment and subscribe to us on iTunes and you'll get the latest episodes as they drop. The Lens is a business in the community programme powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. Today's episode is produced and directed by Harvey Winter with music and editing by Giselle Hall. Our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.